Uh, good morning, everyone. We're looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Uh, I'll give you a couple of moments to open up to that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. So starting at verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty whirled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your, earn, your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honour to Christ. Therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that, you, so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about the service of the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you in Archaea were ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but you may be ready to give as I said you would be. For if the Macedonians come to me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. 
Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and the bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Morning, everyone. Bill and Bob were standing outside their church building. Bill has only his pair of boxer shorts on and his tie. And Bob only has his tidy whities and his singlet. And they're both standing there absolutely dazed and in awe. And Bill says to Bob, that was the most compelling sermon on giving that I've ever heard. (laughs) I hope what they heard is uh, comparable to what I'll preach, but I need God's help. Let's uh, pray together and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks in your word by the power of your spirit to correct us, rebuke us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to uh, train us in righteousness, to develop us more uh, like the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that it will please you to do that for us again this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, when it comes to the topic of giving, the reputation that the church has can be a little bit of a mixed bag. On the negative side, there's the stigma about the church essentially being a money-grubbing institution. One of my favourite songwriters, a guy named Stephen Wilson from the band Porcupine Tree, who none of you have heard of... (laughs) captures this idea with a scathing simplicity in his song Prodigal, which has the verse, and it'll be on the screen, I tried to find myself a better way. I got religion, but I went astray. They took my money and I lost my faith. Scathing simplicity. I love the song too. On the positive side... Most of us will remember that when the salvos were doing their charitable appeals, many of their workers would get praised for taking the collection. Our Gledswood Hills congregation run this thing every year called Toys and Tucker, and they'll be doing it at a shopping centre this year, and some people seem almost desperate to give contributions towards it. Occasionally, you can hear a testimony of someone who finally gets their financial situation in order because they come to faith in Christ and therefore kick their gambling habit. 
But Christians like us who live in a free market economy where there can be at least what we perceive as a relatively large disparity between income from one person to the next, uh, we can feel uncomfortable at the frequency perhaps with which the topic of giving or generosity or money uh, gets raised. But then on the positive, as people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, we're comforted by the fact that there must be something necessary and helpful in coming to that topic over and over because Jesus himself constantly brought up the topic of money in his preaching. If we're people of the word, so must we. But of course, church and experience is one thing. The word of God, which is our final authority, is another thing. The scriptures are written only ever for our good and they stand over our church, over our experience. And the fact that here in 2 Corinthians, the word of God gives two whole chapters where the topic of giving is the major theme means we actually have the perfect opportunity to set the record straight on how it is that as Christians we are to approach and think about the topic of giving. So without further ado, let's dive into this part of God's word together. After urging the Corinthians to live according to the true apostolic gospel by unyoking themselves from false teachers and, as we saw last week, by making sure they had relational connectedness that allows for mutual correcting and strengthening, Paul now teaches these Corinthians about how giving is also a natural outworking of embracing the apostolic gospel. He begins by referring to the practice, interestingly, of other Churches. So verse 1, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Geographically, the Macedonian churches are the north neighbours to the Corinthians, as you can see on my little map there. And you've got a sort of, kind of, almost island-ish of Archaea down the bottom uh, where, where Corinth is situated. And, and the big smoke up north is the region of Macedonia where there's a bunch of churches uh, that Paul has planted. What is it about those Macedonian churches that Paul wants these Corinthians to know about? Well, that's what he continues with, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people and they exceeded our expectations they gave themselves first of all to the lord and then by the will of god also to us i.e with that last sentence they turned to christ and as god intended they embraced the true apostolic gospel which stands behind the reason they were eager to give the lord's people in this context, means the original Jewish church in Jerusalem. It's something we always overlook. In the older translations, they're called saints. Uh, and it's from that original Jewish church in Jerusalem where the gospel has now spread all over the Mediterranean world. And clearly, Paul wants this church here in Corinth to know that these Macedonians have been generous in giving 
tribute to Israel's God by providing for his original church from whom they've received the gospel of salvation. So that's the what of the Macedonian churches. But why does Paul want the Corinthians to know about this? Well, it's because he wants them to do the same thing. And even to do so, get this, with the challenge of being compared to those Macedonians. So, from verse 6, So we urge Titus, just as he had early made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. How does that go with our polite Western sensibilities? I'm going to compare you to that church down the road. For Paul, seeing the predominantly Gentile churches in Macedonia bring their tributes to Israel's God would have been a brilliantly reassuring sign of their theological orthodoxy. And if it can happen with them, surely it can happen also with the churches of Archaea, including Corinth. Hence, Paul shamelessly uses a comparison, perhaps even a sense of competition, to urge the Corinthians to make good on their former commitment to partnering with the Jewish church that they've benefited spiritually from. Why can Paul shamelessly be so strong in his urging to get these Corinthians to give generously to those who gave them the apostolic gospel? Why do you get that sense when you read it? He goes, I'm not commanding you, but... It's kind of like I am. Well, first of all, put simply, anyone who has come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour has by implication said that they already love the idea of sacrificial giving. Verse 9, here's the principle, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see, the gospel itself provides you with the principle that excelling in generous giving must be a good thing. Left to our own devices, every single one of us and me, we have a tremendous debt that we're incapable of paying. We've lived in smug defiance of the God who gives us every breath we are currently breathing, and our declaration of independence from him has rendered us thoroughly incapable of being reconciled to him a situation that will extend into eternity. But our Lord Jesus, who in his very being and nature has absolute equality with God, did not hold on to his infinite riches, but voluntarily lowered himself in order to endure the hell of the cross that you and I deserve. And he did that in the place of individual sinners like you, and me. So, for those to whom God has kindly granted the gift of repentance and trust in Jesus, we've been freed from our unpayable debt. 
and we stand to benefit for all eternity. We cannot help but therefore love the notion that giving sacrificially to benefit others is a really good thing. The gospel itself, according to Paul, let alone basic logic, is what motivates Christians, next slide, to give. The gospel itself is what motivates Christians to give. These Corinthians had rightly in the past said they'd like to do just that. And so Paul obviously says that what's best for them is that they make good on their commitment. So he continues verse 10. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For what's best for this church is they make good on their pledge to give and the making of that pledge was far more important than the amount that would actually be given. That's because it's the willingness to give that shows that these Corinthians are theologically sound and thoroughly converted. Paul doesn't want them to give to those super apostles who keep demanding payment. He wants to give them give to the, the true apostles, the Jerusalem church, whom they've actually benefited from spiritually. And so Paul straight away adds this little teaching point in verse 12 where he says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now that shouldn't surprise us because a characteristic feature of the new covenant is that it reminds us over and over that God is concerned not so much with the outward religious activity, but with the genuine attitude of the heart. It's the willingness. It's the willingness to give generously that shows a heart transformed by Jesus who willingly gave his life for us. For the person with a very small income who only gives, say, I don't know, 5% of what they earn, it could easily be the case that by their actions they're actually shown to be more willing to give generously than the multi-millionaire who gives even 50% of what they earn. And that's basically what Jesus' observation of the poor widow with the two copper coins is, is supposed to teach us. I assume most of you are familiar with that part of the Bible. And indeed, when it comes to the consideration of the amount, equality, or I think nowadays a better word for it, fairness, needs to come into play. Verse 13, Now desire is not that others may, might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there, there might be equality. Same word can be translated fairness. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little, which is the perfect little quote from Exodus, by the way. If you remember what happened, uh, God miraculously provided food in the wilderness. Anyone remember what it's called? Manna. Yeah. Does anyone know what the word actually means? What is it? That's, what are you having for breakfast? What is it? That's what I have. Manna. He, he made it rain manna for the Israelites in the wilderness, and they collected according to the size of their families. The reality is that any money, any material wealth or possessions that you have that I have, are actually only ever always all from God. And he wants to give in such a way that the givers don't get too poor and the receivers don't get too rich. Fairness. God is a God of, of justice. He looks after those who need more, like the oppressed and the widow, etc. But then things start to get a little more intense. In the next section, from verse 16, 
Paul teaches that eager and generous giving is, to use his own phrase, the proof of your love. Presumably, I think, love for Jesus and for his chosen people. In verses 16 through 23, and also 9 verse 3, I'm not going to read them all out, Paul explains that his co-worker Titus is going to visit Corinth ahead of him in order to make sure that their offering is completed before Paul and his, his offsiders arrive. There will be two other gospel workers accompanying Titus, one of whom serves as a representative of the Jerusalem church, and one of whom is well known by many of the churches that presumably have already had their contributions successfully delivered to the Jerusalem church. The reason that's done, of course, is to make sure that money is handled in a way that's completely above reproach, which I'm actually proud to say is, as far as I can tell, also an excellent feature of Anglican churches in general and of our church in particular. I can say this because I have nothing to do with it. I'm just an observer. I personally have nothing to do with handling money at our church because A, I'm not allowed and B, even if I was, I'd stuff it up. I'm thoroughly incompetent at those sorts of things. Every now and then I find a wad of cash on my desk that's like been there since a camp two years ago where someone gave me the payment and I didn't know what to do with it. Anyway, um, <laughs> if ever our budget's really bad, just have a search in my desk. <laughs> but even I can see that the work of our wardens, our parish uh, councillors, and Peter Graham in particular, sorry to single you out and embarrass you, but you deserve it because of that mo, is really top-notch stuff. I've got complete confidence that the money Stacey and I give to our church is actually managed really well and used really well in a way that is thoroughly above reproach. But how does Paul instruct the Corinthians to respond to these men who will be managing the gift? Well, that's the key part. Verse 24, therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, even more shockingly, so that the churches can see it. I take it that the generous giving is proof of their love for Jesus and the church of his apostles who gave them the gospel. Broadly speaking, it is tangible proof for love of God and neighbour, something that's again, next slide, a natural outworking of the apostolic gospel. Gospel giving is a tangible proof of the love for God and neighbour. And Paul says that this is something he takes pride in in something he wants the other churches also to see, presumably because it will serve as a great encouragement to them. Initially, this stuff seems a little bit counterintuitive and uncomfortable to me, and I suspect maybe some of us as well. But if I apply Paul's approach here in the Word of God directly to us here and now, then I'd be forced to conclude that it's right to be proud of the fact that other churches know that there are such faithful and sacrificial givers here that as a parish we employ three full-time and four part-time and one very kind volunteer, even though we're not a super big church. I think if we apply what Paul's teaching, we say, I take great pride in Grace Anglican Harrington Park because of the generosity here and I want the other churches to know about it. 
In case you didn't know this, our ministry is funded pretty much entirely by our members, by us. And the fact that we are where we are under God is actually a real credit to the faithful and generous givers of our church. I'm personally thankful, of course, for faithful givers here, as I know the other staff, but the way I see it, that's almost an irrelevance. What Paul says he takes pride in uh, is, is their generosity. And, and when Paul says that, well, he's saying it as the ambassador for the head of the church. He's saying it in the name of Jesus. And so I'm actually happy to declare with great authority that Jesus is honoured by our ongoing faithful giving. And that trumps any thanks any of us could ever give. But as Paul is unashamed to urge the church towards sacrificial and generous giving on the basis of the gospel itself, so I'm also compelled by the word to suggest that if you're a follower of Jesus, but you don't yet have a willingness to give to gospel ministry, as would be shown by you actually doing it, then it must be the case that either you've got some growth in Christian maturity to do, or you've got some repenting to do. And I'm almost certain that there's got to be some people for whom that's, that's a real thing, either, either here among us or, or watching online. Earlier this week, I asked Peter for an analysis of our giving here at Grace and Lincoln Church, uh, for this congregation, for Harrington Park, all completely, totally anonymous, of course, Peter helpfully categorises givers into these things called EGUs, or electronic giving units. Next slide. A single person living by themselves who gives to church would be one EGU. They, they are one electronic giving unit. Uh, Stacy and I are two people, yet we're one EGU because we give to church out of the one account from the one... You could think of an EGU as a household comprised of one or more people. Now, I learned from Peter's uh, helpful uh, data that our congregation here currently has 49 EGUs, 49 households that are contribu contributing to, to gospel work here financially, and that's current. And by current, uh, we mean that they've given at least once sometime since the start of 2022, sometime since the start of this year. But given our number and our households, there are potentially 81 EGUs. That means almost 40% of people who say that Grace Anglican Church, Harrington Park is their church, are currently not giving towards gospel ministry at all. Proportionately, there are more EGUs, both at our night church and at Gladeswood Hills congregations than there are here. Look at them and be compared to them. I can't help but wonder, precisely because I myself am guilty of this, if really one of the big reasons why some Christians aren't proving that they're willing to give is really for lack of thought and planning. Paul himself had the same thought about the church in Corinth, which is why he addresses that from the start of chapter 9. He writes in verse 1, There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, 
And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance, to finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. So you put this all together, in Paul's mind, it's possible for people to be excelling in a number of areas of gospel living. And even to be willing to give on the basis that they've benefited from Jesus' sacrifice and the receiving of the apostolic gospel. And yet still, to need to have people help them get prepared to give in accordance with their own desire to do so. To put it simply, gospel giving, according to Paul, requires thought and planning. To... Put thought into how you use the money that God has entrusted you with is actually an act, an act of thankful obedience to the gospel to, for your salvation. So it could well be that one of the reasons that someone has not yet joyfully submitted themselves to the liberating obedience that is in Jesus in this particular area of life is because you're not actually that thoughtful or responsible with your money full stop, like me. And a way to remedy that could be, well, in my case, to marry someone who is. <laughs> or, more realistically, just like we saw last week, uh, to benefit from being relationally connected with your church community Put up your hand if you are a person who creates a household budget. Put up your hand if you're that person. Okay? Keep them up. For all the people who are not in the same households as one of these people with their hands up and who don't put sufficient thought into their finances, like me, these are your brothers and sisters that you need to ask help from in this area. Thank you, hands down. You can do it as a community. By the way, one of the most important lessons about preaching that I got, thankfully, at the great Bible college, more theological college, is that you always must make sure you're applying the word of God to yourself first. So the other day, I begrudgingly put a note in my shared calendar with Stacy to review our giving. I'll show you what it says. It'll be on the slide. It says, at home date, including brief money discussion. I love that barefoot investor guy that she reads. Lord, help me. <laughs> Which is meant as much as an idiomatic expression as also a genuine prayer. I actually need Lord to help me. Uh, we do do it. Like, we do talk about it often at the beginning of the year or every now and then when our financial situation changes. You know, she tells me what's going on and I say yes or no and, you know, good. <laughs> The last thing Paul draws our attention to is the positive result of gospel giving. The return for your investment is worth far more than the investment itself. 
For gospel giving results in righteousness and strengthening, both for the individual and for the church and even churches. This section begins, verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. So again, if you're unprepared to make good on your pledge, you might find yourself at the last minute giving reluctantly, whereas if you've put thought and planning into, it, into the situation, you can be the cheerful giver that God loves. And such giving will be sowing generously and thus will reap a generous reward. What's the generous reward? Well, verse 8, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Remember what Jesus himself said in the greatest sermon ever preached? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for material gain, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, it's a dreadful tragedy that you can find easily enough preachers who teach that giving abundantly means you'll eventually receive financial and material blessing as a direct result. I've sat under someone who's preached that once upon a time. That sounds to me far more like the kingdoms of this world rather than the kingdom of heaven. Paul's teaching here makes it plain that the return for gospel giving is righteousness and, as we'll see in the final verses, strengthening in the faith both for yourself and for others. You want to be progressing in your Christian maturity and be strengthened in the faith? Well, then it makes sense to be a thought-out gospel giver. You're immature as a Christian. Is it because you're not a thought-out gospel giver? And of course, when any group of God's people grow in their righteousness and in their maturity, it can't help but give a great morale boost to other groups of God's people. And so verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, that is the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to read those words again. The obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul sees giving as a very immediate outwork of the confession that Jesus Christ is your Lord. And continuing, verse 13, for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, 
which I think at this point encapsulates both Jesus and what's happening with the churches. Guys, there's some person from our night congregation, I'm choosing someone not here, some person from our night congregation, who I have no idea who it is, who gives a small and varied amount each week. Uh, $14.92 this week and $8.37 next week and $17.24 next week. And I don't know the actual amounts and I certainly don't know the person. Uh, Peter just kind of told me about this in very anonymous ways. But my best guess is that's a young teenager who gets shift work, probably flipping burgers or selling donuts or babysitting or whatever, and that each pay period they're working out a percentage of what they've been paid, perhaps 10%, perhaps 7 I have no idea, and then giving that portion towards the ministry of their church. I don't know about you, but to me, I think that's the most extraordinarily wonderful and encouraging thing. Can you see how just knowing that kind of makes your heart go out to them and want to thank God for the way that this young boy or girl is, is faithfully serving the Lord with what he has given them? The amount they give is not the main game. It's their faithfulness, their willingness, their generosity and the fact that they've thought and planned that give great honour to Christ and great encouragement to me and I assume many people now that you know that little bit of information. Some people's financial situation means that the amount they give should be very small. Some people's financial situation means the amount they give should be very big. But all of us who know the Lord, who for our sakes became poor, should have a great willingness to give, as should be demonstrated by us doing so. As I already said, there are many great givers here amongst us for whom I know, because I've heard it in staff meetings, there is amazing thankfulness uh, and praise to God. To summarise, gospel giving is motivated by the gospel itself, is a tangible proof of love for God and neighbour. It requires thought and planning and it results in righteousness and strengthening for us and for others. By way of implications, and I'll be brief on this, notice that Paul speaks not to an individual or individuals in, in, in the way he writes in these chapters, but to the church as a whole, even though what he says ought to be taken on and embraced by all the individuals who make up the church. Um, and I think he does that, obviously, for a number of reasons. It would be sort of you know, difficult to address a whole lot of a range of situations and circumstances. He gives you the principle and then you work out how it applies to you. Uh, different people are in different circumstances, which is why it's right that we, he addresses the whole. We follow that practice. We have... Financial updates about how we're going is, you know, it's not going to say this person gave this much. That'll be a disaster, right? It's here's, here's how we're going as a church. And you can access that information uh, pretty easily. There's probably uh, something on your bulletin or in your, currently in the week, I don't know if it was last week, in the weekly email that showed how we're, was it last week, boss, or the week before? All right. If you don't get the weekly email, for goodness sake, when you do your QR thing, say, I want the weekly email and, you know, put your, put your email address on that. Um, we show whole giving, not individual giving, which is right and proper. But it makes sense that, you know, you don't think just, oh, well, there's some big fancy machine out there that generates money and I just look at it and go, oh, if this is your church, you should 
care about that. Take it seriously. Think, how do you fit in to this kind of corporate scheme? But finally, and this is totally awesome, and this is what I've been waiting for really the whole time. This thing here is called Guidelines for Giving. I read through it the last week. There is a link to get this on your handout, and James kindly printed a bunch of copies, which are somewhere on the, the table with the black tablecloth there. I don't know who wrote this, but whoever did is a genius, because they've just thought through very simply, very carefully, in a way that anyone can embrace how giving should work for followers of Jesus. There's even, check this out, Step one, calculating how much you give. The first practical step is to work out how much money you have to start with. The table below is a simple way to do that. Even I could do that. I don't know how much money we get, but I could ask Stacey, and even I <laughs> could work out how to do this. Here we go. It's based on the amount of income you actually get, the benefit of after your tax salary along with other income benefits. Well, she'll tell me that. And then you put the total and then says prayerfully consider how much you would like to set aside from this amount to give. You can work out the actual amount using the table below. So you can even put it in, right? Write the numbers with your calculator. This is like, I, any application I give is nowhere near as good as this. Get this. If you're not a planned and thought out person, go the link that's on your little handout get this. <sighs> My wife's here, so I have to <laughs> say... I have to stick to the words that I say is that I'll we'll look at this at least on, uh, on um, Thursday when we have our date. <laughs> for my sake and for us all, let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ that though infinitely rich, for our sakes, he gave up all those things that he could rightly have held on to made himself a slave, became obedient to death, even a death on a cross, and endured the hell that we deserve. And that he did that so that we might become rich. Heavenly Father, as followers of Jesus, we absolutely love and delight in the notion of sacrificial giving. And Father, we pray that as a church and as individuals, you'd move in us powerfully by your Spirit uh, to keep us so delighted in the personal work of Jesus that we are delighted and cheerful and well-thought-out givers to the gospel work that in your great kindness you've been able to, to go on here. Father, we uh, are so thankful for the way you've moved in the hearts of so many uh, to make them faithful, cheerful, generous givers for the sake of the gospel here. And for those who need correction or repentance, Father, we pray that you, in your kindness, will grant that by the power of your spirit as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.